So it's a lot of fun to be in a service like this where it seems like every age has had a part with the kids singing and the children's message, lighting the candles. We had the choir. So thanks for everyone. This has been good. I want to start just by, I haven't talked about these things in a while. Uh, It's the 100 essential readings. A lot of you took those. Maybe if you're newer, you, you didn't see those or didn't get a chance. But it's they were 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament passages that are key to reading. And I'm, I myself have been going through it. And I, I just finished the Old Testament. And, and maybe you're in a similar spot. I would encourage you if, you, if you didn't jump in, we could still get some of these somewhere. You could, you could start with the New Testament. You know, that way you're kind of going along, along the way. But, but in making that transition to the, from the Old to New, the, the question I, I'm thinking about today is do, do we get the same picture of God from the New Testament as the Old? And so what I would suggest is I've heard people kind of get an idea that the God of the Old Testament is similar to a certain Christmas movie character. The Grinch. Where, where does the Grinch live? high up on a mountain, and he's, he's quite old, right? And the Grinch is angry. The Grinch looks down upon the, the who's in Whoville, looks down upon the people way down at the bottom of the mountain, and he's not happy at what he sees. And the Grinch wants to find a way to punish those down below. And I've heard said, suggested, oftentimes critics of our our faith will say, that's what God is like. God is old, he lives high on a mountain, and he's ready, especially the God of the Old Testament, he's he's not happy at what he sees. He is an angry God who wants to punish people. But what happened on Christmas morning for the Grinch, right? There was a Christmas Day miracle. It says that the Grinch's heart was two sizes too small, But on Christmas morning, his heart grew three sizes that day. And suddenly his heart was softened towards the the little who's in Whoville. And suddenly he had compassion for the people. And, And so, is that what happened? God in the Old Testament was an angry God looking to get it. But then, Christmas morning happened. The Son of God was born. And God's heart softened a bit. And God sort of realized, you know, Jesus is born. Um, he had, God had a change of heart and realized that he should be more forgiving. And so now God is all about love and kittens and, and all that stuff. Is that, is that the story of the Bible? That God used to be angry and now and, and wrathful. Now God, because of Jesus, is a bit, is a bit more loving. I'm going to argue against that. In fact, I'm going to make the case that God has never been the Grinch on the mountain. That God has always been a God of love and grace. And that Jesus came to set the record straight. He came so that we could take a closer look at God and see what he's really like. So I want to start with what's known as God's self-revelation. It is a, a, a couple verses in Exodus 34 when Moses said to God, God, show me, what, show me who you are. God did it. And here's, here's the, the, the thing that the, the, the angel or that God himself declared about himself. So it's a self 
Revelation. This is how God describes himself. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Note the adjectives it's, it uses about God. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Right? All those characteristics. Now, there's this other part where it says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the children's children to that in the third and fourth generation. We're going to talk about that second part later. But, but take note, God's, the character qualities of God, he's, he's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, quick to forgive. That is who God is. And, and there are variations of this that keeps getting repeated in the, in the Old Testament Bible. It's like God keeps insisting, this is what I'm, this is what I'm really like. Really, really, I am. And, and so uh, if you just have the phrase, slow to anger, abounding in love, these are all the places where that phrase shows up about God. God says, this is who I am. And what I would declare this morning, God's compassion and grace are inherent to who God is. It is a core attribute of God's character. The New Testament says it even more simply. It just says God is love. Right? That's who God is. That's who God keeps insisting he is. Now, is it possible God is deluded about his own self? You know, we... We, have, we, we can have a, a, a delusion about our own self-image, right? You, you know people who say they're one thing, but you know that's not what they're all, you know. I, to tell the truth, when I think of myself, I, I, I picture Brad Pitt, right? That's, that's how I see myself. Now, I, in my more honest moments, I realize I'm more like Danny DeVito, but, you know, I try not to think about that part. You know, is, the question is, is God... Ain't wrong about his own character. Like he keeps insisting he's loving, but everyone else says, oh, you're an angry God. You know? If he is, how does he get this reputation as a God full of wrath and anger? Did anyone else in high school English have to read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? I see one head nodding, right? It's Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He's one of our Puritan forefathers a key part of the the first great awakening. And it's about how God is angry and wrathful and you better get get saved before he he brings bad. And so, so God's compassionate and grace are inherent to who God is. Here's the second half. God's anger, or you could say God's wrath, same word. God's anger is situational. It is a response to the world as it is. It is not a character quality. Does that distinction make sense? Right? One is it's who God is always, all the time. The other is it's situational. It is a response to, to what, what is happening in the world. And that's where we get that second half of the verse where it says, you know, by, who will by no means clear the guilty and, and all that. It's, it's saying God, God cannot just simply ignore human evil and sin. God can't just say, well, 
You know, no big deal. I, because I love everyone, I'll just pretend I don't see what I see. You see, God made a good world. But that world has been corrupted by human sinfulness. God made a good world and good people. They chose to listen to God's enemy, then God, and now the world is full of violence and injustice. God can't ignore that. God chose one people to be his, to, to, to bless them and, and to, through them to bless the whole world, his Israel, the chosen people. But they kept turning to worship other gods. The, one of the, the key images of God in the Old Testament is like he, he compares himself to an aggrieved spouse whose, whose spouse, whose wife has gone unfaithful and yet God keeps reaching out. Um, God would bless his people. You see this in the Old Testament. And he would bless them and bring good to them. But they would not, in turn, do what was right. They would not take care of the poor, but would take advantage, would, would not care for the widows and orphans. They would not do what is good and right, as God kept telling them to do. God can't ignore that. God was determined to protect his people, protect Israel. But then the other nations would come in and, and, and do damage to Israel, to, to take advantage of their situation and harm them. And so God's protective nature would, would, would spur anger towards those other nations. So my point being is God's anger and wrath is spurred out of his goodness. God's, it, it actually emerges out of good, goodness and love for, for people. That's how God has got this reputation as an angry God. And in order for people, in order to set the record straight... In order for, for people to see what God is truly like, God would have to come near in a totally different way. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. Jesus is God drawing near to us, near enough to people that we could see what God's heart is, what his character is like. John 1 says it this way. It says the word, which is, is the, the, you know, rather than the written word, it's, it's the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's talking about Jesus being born. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the coming of Jesus, we see the heart of God, and we see that his heart is full of compassion and grace. He is slow to anger, abounding in love. So Mark chapter 3, let's look at a few things we actually see about Jesus in how he treated people, where his compassion and grace just shows up. And so in Mark 3, we see the contrast of Jesus with the religious leaders of his time, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. And they, the incident, the setting is, is the synagogue during worship. Okay, so synagogue is, you could think of it as the Jewish version of a church it's a better way to think the church is the, the Christian version of a synagogue, right? We, they were first. And the synagogue is a place where they gathered for study and worship, study of God's word and worship. And on Sabbath day, they would come, and it was a day for rest and not for work. It was a day to worship and focus on God and not our own stuff. And in comes a man with a withered hand. So he's got this crippled hand. And the religious leaders are watching Jesus because he's already gotten a reputation as a healer. And so they're watching what he's doing, going to do, and they are ready to accuse. Now, what would they accuse him of? 
Well, because the Sabbath is a day of rest and not for work. If Jesus is a healer, then healing the man is work, and so he's breaking God's law, right? That's their thinking. And, and, and here's the thing. They're so off, right? Jesus calls them on it. He says, what would God want you to do on the Sabbath? Would he want you to do good or evil? Would he want you to save life or kill, right? You guys are thinking all wrong. Think of the view they have of God. They have a rotten view of God, and that's the problem. They picture God as the Grinch, as looking down from his mountain, looking, and he's angry at what he sees. And because of that, and here's the thing, these are the religious leaders. These are the ones who've studied and read the Bible, and yet they have a a mistaken view of God. And so what does Jesus do? He heals the man, and he takes the heat upon himself. He shows compassion, even though it's going to cost him, because what do they do? They immediately begin to go plot how they can take him down. Ultimately, it will lead to him being put to death. That's Jesus' compassion. That compassion just keeps showing up over and over again. In the beginning of Mark's gospel, it just talks about how, how they brought people to him. It says at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Anyone who was hurting, anyone who was messed up in their life, they brought to Jesus And it says the whole city was gathered at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons. Jesus used his time just to to be compassionate and caring for people. Um, Soon after that, it says a guy came to him who had leprosy. If you were a leper, you were shut out from society. No one had to come near you. Jesus not only healed the man, it says he was moved with pity. In Mark 1, chapter 40, he moved with pity. Same thing as compassion, right? His heart went out to the guy. And it says he put his hand on the the man. He touched him. What no one else would do. That is a picture of God's heart. Not only healing him, but drawing near, putting his hand on him. Later, there was a woman who had been ill for 12 years with a bleeding problem. and, And she... She got healed simply, she, she believed that if she could just touch the cloak of Jesus, she would be healed. And guess what? God did it that way. She was healed. And Jesus could have kept walking, but instead he stopped. And he, he spent time just listening to her, share about her problems, her, her struggles. And, and then he, he reassured her with kind words. Daughter, it is your faith that has led to your healing. Go and be at peace. That's compassion. In Mark 6.34, it says that specifically, it says there, there was a crowd that interrupted Jesus and, and his plans for being with his disciples, getting alone with his disciples, but the crowd just shows up. And it says when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He saw these people, and he knew that there were some who were evil or wrong or, or, or lost, and yet he gave them time. Flawed people. Jesus' heart towards them is God's heart to men and women today. When Jesus described what God had sent him to do, because it's not just Jesus, right? He's reflecting God, but he's, this is what I was sent to do, to bring good news to the poor, to heal the lame, to heal the blind, to let the blind see again. God sent me to bring all this good. 
Because the the love is flowing from the Father. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Um, He showed compassion also by defending people against the shame and punishment of the power. In Luke 7, it talks about a a sinful woman. We don't know what the sinfulness is. We can guess she might have been a prostitute or something like that. But she found forgiveness um, in talking with Jesus. And and she doesn't want to... She doesn't want to leave his side. She says she's weeping and just so thankful that, that Jesus passed on God's forgiveness. But they're in a house, and the owner of the house is a religious guy, and he's like, what are you doing here? You know, he's all uptight about her, and, and he held her in contempt. While Jesus showed compassion, he held contempt, and Jesus defended the woman before him and talked about what she was doing was good. In John 8, it was even more clear. A a group of religious leaders wanted to put to death a woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus not only stopped them, he put them to shame and and protected her. And simply said, daughter, go and sin no more. No one's going to condemn you. He came to show compassion. He naturally had compassion. Another time, a synagogue healing, it was a woman bent over who was crippled by a, uh, disabled by a crippling spirit. Some, somehow God's enemy spirits were upon her, and, and not, Jesus not only healed her, but the, publicly defended her against the synagogue leader who said, you guys shouldn't be showing up to be healed on, on Sabbath day. Jesus showed compassion. He showed a heart of grace even to those who were against him. In Luke 22, it talks about how Peter hit, hit the, used a sword and cut off the ear of, of one of those who came to arrest Jesus. Je- Peter's trying to protect Jesus. Jesus says, we're not going to do that. And he healed the man's ear, the one coming to arrest him. The next page, Jesus called for forgiveness on the Roman soldiers who were nailing his hands to the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then the next page after that, there's a man thief all his life, and Jesus welcomed him into the kingdom at the last minute. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Just a little while longer, the pain will be over, and you'll be with God. We're meant to see what God is like by looking at the character of Jesus. We're told, you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. John 1, back to that, it says, says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus makes God known to us. More than any other place, if you want to know the heart of God, you have to look at Jesus. Hebrews um, chapter 1 says that God has spoken. He'd spoken in the past, but now he's spoken in these last days by his Son, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And that word imprint is the, that of a wet, if you had a ring and, that you put on a wax seal on. So God is the ring, Jesus is the wax seal, right? It's the exact imprint of what God's character is like. Um, Colossians 1.15, as simple as you can say it, he, uh, he's the visible image of the invisible God. He was given so that we could see what God is really like. So, 
Remember that self-disclosure? God says, I'm slow to anger, abounding in love. But then he did have to say, he does say, but I, I, I'm not just going to ignore the sin and wrong that I see. Well, did Jesus ever get mad? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah. He especially yeah. he got especially mad at the religious leaders who had access to God's revelation and yet got God wrong. And yet got God wrong. Who kept had this wrong view. Um, he got upset at the synagogue leader who told people to not healing. He got upset at the Pharisees for how they condemned sinners rather than reaching out to them and trying to help them. He got really ticked off at the, the temple leaders for how they tried to get rich off the pilgrims rather than giving them a place to pray. So yes, Jesus still got angry at the, the sin and wrongdoing. Um, it tended to get aimed at those who knew what they're supposed to do and didn't do it. He called, he told the scribes, well, he told and a scribe was someone who could read, would read God's word. He told them, you were like whitewashed tombs on the outside. Sure, you look fine, but inside you're death. Um, in Matthew 23, Jesus goes on a rant. There's no other word to call it. He, 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 he says, whoa, to, and he talks about the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees. So here, here's two things that he says here's about them. He says, you tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but, but they themselves are not willing to move them with the finger, to lift a finger to help them. In other words, what's he accusing them of? You make it hard to, to, to know God, to follow God, and you have no compassion for the normal, everyday person. Right? The guy who has to do a day job, who can't just sit around reading the Torah all the time. You have no compassion for how, how they would follow God. The second thing he says about them in verse 13 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves, nor would you allow them, anyone else to enter in. Right? You shut the door to God in people's faces. You see, God, the Son of God, is ang does get angry at sin and unrighteousness. He is willing to forgive. But when people know the truth and they don't, they don't live it, what's left? Right? It says he's, that self-revelation, he's, he's, he's keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He's willing to forgive, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means ignore the sin that, that's out there. God's intent is to show love um, to, to those who are willing to own up to the junk in their life and seek his grace. But God cannot just ignore the wrongs and evil that people do. Would you want a God who does? Would you want a God who's all compassion and fuzzy bunnies and warm butterfly kisses? but ignores um, murder or mistreatment, who can watch someone steal the life savings of a, uh, an elderly person or a widow and say, oh, that's no big deal. I'm not going to do anything about that. Would you want a God who just ignores it, who would hurt your kids, ignore the evil of someone who hurts kids? No. We, we want God. We need a God who, 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 who will not let that, that stand. Um, we know that God, so that verse I read, that, that, that's the second half, it, 
It talks, it makes it sound like God holds guilty children for their parents. And we know elsewhere, God makes clear he does not hold guilty children for their parents' sin. But we do know this, is that the consequences of, of sin goes through generations, right? It, it never just lands on the one who does the sin. It always affects people around, and it affects their kids and their grandkids. And what God is saying is he's got to deal with that generation after generation God's wrath is not inherent to his character. It is situational. It's due to the hard-heartedness of men. So Jesus came to change the situation. Ezekiel 36. It's 600 years before Jesus. It gives a prophecy of what God himself would do, the Messiah would do. And it's in two parts. So Ezekiel 36, first part says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Jesus would give himself as a sacrifice for our sin, to cleanse us from the guilt of sin. That's, that's huge. Because all of us needed cleansed from our sin. We see the guilt and sin of others so much more easily than we see it ourselves. And we needed what he could do. But that's not the end of what he does. So that's, that's the first part. The second part. And I will give you, so this is verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart, uh, a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God will take away our heart of stone and give us a new heart. He has to deal with the hardness within the hearts of men and women. Think of Mark 3 and the religious leaders. They believed in God. They knew God's laws. They, but they had this wrong view of God. And in that verse, there was at one point it says he was grieved at their hardness of heart. What we need and what the Messiah came to bring is an operating system reset. So to switch analogies from heart surgery, right, a new heart, to computers, right? If your computer is malfunctioning, sometimes it's so bad, you need to reset the entire operating system for your computer, right? God, um, the Lord Jesus came not just to forgive sin, he came to do a reset in the inner being of individual men and women. He did not come just to teach us to be more compassionate, or show us how to be compassionate. He has to give us a spirit so that we can be compassionate. Because it's not in us. We need that system reset. Because there is inner corruption in every person. And it's often invisible to ourself. I'm sure the Pharisees did not think of themselves as, as wrong and sinful in what they were doing. They could see the sinfulness of that other people with great clarity, but they could not see the brokenness within their own inner being. Do you think it's just them? Or does each one of us have corruption and sin in our heart? It may look very different, and it does look very different from person to person, but we're so prone to see the corruption in someone else, and it can be invisible what's in our own heart to ourselves. 
You see, each of us needs that heart surgery. We need that heart transplant. We need that system reset. We need the Lord to take away the, the, the hardness that we have and give us a heart that's, that's more like his. And that's what happens when we put our trust and faith in Jesus. It's not just that he cancels the sin penalty against us. He comes into our life. He becomes a part of our inner being. His spirit lives with us forever, forevermore. And, and in our inner being, the grace and truth of God begins to, to redo the heart. And in some ways it happens all at once, and in some days it happens over a lifetime. That is the big story of the Bible, is that the image of God got broken, and to fix it, God had to come in within each individual person and begin to do that healing work, that, that factory reset for each of us. 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, right? It doesn't say Christian. It, the Bible doesn't actually use that word very much. It talks about being in Christ, having Christ in our life. If we're in Christ, then that person is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The, set, the factory reset has happened. He lives within us, and as he does, his spirit begins to do a work within us. And so our part is bringing out into our day-to-day life what he already does within us. Right? He puts it inside of us, and we kind of work it out in our day-to-day life. We, we, we practice it in, in how we, we live out the stuff we do. Friends, does your life, does your heart towards other people, the way you respond to others, does it show signs of a changed heart? Has your heart become hardened over time? Are we able, do we have the compassion, the same compassion of Jesus or has this world slowly encrusted our heart so that we view people as problems? We view people as interruptions. We, we think about ourselves and our own advancement and we think little of others. Do you need a factory reset in your heart right now? Do you need God to do a, a real work within you? That's why he came. That's what Christmas is about? Um, Does the way you respond to people show signs of a changed heart? I just invite you to to pray, and as we're going to do a closing hymn, we're going to do an old hymn, um, but invite you to pray. The prayer could just be something simple as this. Lord Jesus, I put my trust in you. May you give me through your spirit the same grace and compassion for others that you had. Invite Jesus to bring that kind of compassion into your heart and life. I want to close by singing an old hymn. There are some of the classic hymns from, uh, from the past that the church just cannot lose. And one of those is, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Let's see if I can find the words. So it, goes, it starts off like this. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. 
It's, it's using old-fashioned words, but it's inviting God to tune our heart so that it's in line with God's grace. And it talks about how God has shown us grace and favor, and that that grace and favor, that forgiveness, can change how we respond to other people. Let me just read the last verse. It says, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Father in heaven, we thank you that you did not give up on this world. Um, though we had turned from you, you did not turn from us. That your, your grace and forgiveness is poured out among people. And I thank you that it's been poured out upon us. May the grace and forgiveness we've received soften our heart that we might have hearts in tune with yours, that we might have that same compassion and grace for others. We, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and sing this song, just make that your prayer. Think, think how these words apply to us today.